Hi, this is Paul Bertoli. I'm the chef of Framani, and this is Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We then speak to the producers of those ingredients to talk about the history, how it's made, and why chefs love using them in their kitchens. Uh-huh, Andrea, here we are in Berkeley, California. Such a cool vibe to It this is so place. cool here. And we're talking with one of the OG chefs of the Bay Area. Paul Bertoli. Such a legend. Can't wait to sit down with him at his home. We're going to go to his house to talk to him in a few minutes. So generous for him to invite us into his home and yeah. speak can't, with him. Can't I can't wait. wait to see. Like, I want to see what his fridge looks like. Yeah. Paul's claim to fame is that he was one of the original chefs at Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Tell us uh, about Chez Panisse, John. Chez Panisse is kind of the original farm-to-table restaurant of the United States. Um, it was founded by a woman named Alice Waters, who is a chef and a visionary, I would say. The restaurant opened in the early 1970s. 70s, yeah. And it almost like, you know, listen, this is the San Francisco Bay Area and Berkeley. So there's a real like hippie vibe. And um, I think the restaurant back the, in that day almost took on like a communal feel to it. Yeah. You know, they were very socially conscious of what they were doing. And Alice in particular was very particular about how she sourced out her ingredients. Of Making course, like relationships with farmers. Yes. I did not eat. I was too young to have gone to Chez Panisse, uh, you know, at that era. But the things that I've read and seen on, you know, documentaries and, and, and heard about you know, that's what was going on at the restaurant. And they had some, you know, it was an incubator also for some amazing chefs. Yeah. Um, and Paul being one of them. So, yes, they were looking at, it was, it, it, I think her ideal was, you know, this uh, French bistro that was really, you know, something like that driven had- Driven by California. Yeah. Things had, you know, in Europe and France and Italy and Spain and other parts of Europe, they were always doing market cuisine. Uh, and, you know, going to the market each day and seeing what was freshest and best and bringing that into the back door of the restaurant and cooking really with it. that didn't exist in the United States. In the United States, it didn't. I mean, chefs were using um, a lot of products that were preserved or frozen or, you know, they were using tomatoes in December and they were using, you know, strawberries in October and thing, you know, cooking outside of the seasons. And, you know, Alice took advantage of what was going on in the farmer's markets. And to your point, she did. She made great relationships with these producers and these farmers and ended up making, you know, very simple food, very elevated because of that particular emphasis on the ingredients. And then you bring in Paul Bertoli, who is of, you know, Italian origin, who brought in a whole Italian Mediterranean aspect to the cooking. And, you know, which works very well with that type yeah. of market cuisine sure. because that's how much of the great food of Italy is done. And again, we're not talking about red sauce Italian here, but we're talking about Mediterranean, Mediterranean yeah. farms, you know, f farm to table. Ingredient driven. Yep. And so a real emphasis on looking at, you know, the different types of beans or any kind of fruits or vegetables or meats for that matter. Years later, Paul, you know, Paul went on to 
have his own amazing restaurant in Berkeley called Olivetto. But then, you know, so many decades in the kitchen, he, and I think he was doing this, uh, you know, at home before, but he was making his own salumi and charcuterie and founded a company called Fra Mani. Yes. What does that mean? Handmade? Handmade, I think. Yeah. And so he's got now one of the most incredible, you know, companies that produces salami and and yeah. other Italian meats. And so... And Fermani really speaks to the same thing that we were just talking about with, you know, Chef Alice Waters, you know, uh, procuring her produce and ingredients from specific farmers. Uh, Paul is doing the same thing with Fermani. He is ensuring that the pork that they're using, um, you know, there are no antibiotics, there's no hormones, there's no nitrates. Um, they're practicing a really great animal husbandry. Yeah. So the animals are treated really, really well. As pretty a picture as you want to paint, that's how these pigs are living. Um, and that's, for me, it's really important. Um, something that I learned when I started working at Chefs, I don't think I realized um the, the life of animals and, and like the sacrifice. Yeah. So to know that you're eating a product that um, is raised responsibly, to me, speaks volumes. And I have to say, his charcuterie is so delicious. And we're talking about the ingredient this, you know, for this episode is one of my most favorite charcuterie items. And I, I really do think it's having a moment. Yeah. Mortadella. Oh, love mortadella. Like that would like your reaction. Yeah. That's like how I like I think most people feel who love it. Like, oh, mortadella. It's like the dreamiest yes. version of bologna. Like tell, did tell you me. I grew up eating bologna like like I my you know, if my mom wasn't you know, yeah. my mom liked bologna, but my grandma, not my mom, but my grandma, I have memories like so that. The, you know the old Oscar Mayer bologna, yeah. and I'm B-O-L-O-G-N-A. sure there's bo- yeah, exactly like that slap between a little bit of bread with mustard on it. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite, no. But as you grow older, and if you're lucky enough to have traveled to Italy, and then all of a sudden you go and you have mortadella with pistachios or without pistachios, all of a sudden you're like. I think this is what those Oscar Mayer people were trying to get at because this is delicious, luscious, tender, creamy, silky. Yeah. Yes. And you're 100% correct. It is having a moment now. Um, I remember going to a restaurant in New York City a few years ago called Frenchette. And one of their like signature appetizers was just like this pile of like heavenly looking mortadella and just like you picked up the pieces and put them in your mouth and it was amazing. Yeah, just we like had melt lunch. in your mouth. Um, we had lunch at Chisiamo, Chef Hillary Sterling's restaurant. Yeah. And we had the, I think, was it served with the gnocco frito? Yeah. With the mortadella? Yeah. Oh, it was in, that amazing. Yeah, it's great. And you know, here, another thing, it's also very versatile, like mm-hmm. mortadella, here's my little like hack. If you can get a thick chunk of it, you can cube it. Mm. And then put it into a dry frying pan yeah. and just brown it up and on all sides and it gets crispy and you can dip it in mustard. I mean, it's amazing. You could almost do like a mortadella crouton that way in a salad. Oh, yes. Look right? at you. That yeah. would be good. Uh-huh. So I cannot wait to talk about mortadella with Paul. Um, I can't wait to just hear his story. Yeah. I mean, and we thought for this episode, you know, we always do there, you know, we speak with a chef and then we speak with the producer for this episode. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be speaking with Paul as the chef and he's also the producer. So it's going to be a little bit different, but I cannot wait to talk to him. It's like a two for one special. Is that what you're saying? Yes. We get Paul for a whole 40 minutes. Amazing. At his home. Cannot wait. Can't wait. 
This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios. This, I, I'm not even. I'm you're, just, you're out of words. I'm Tom. out of words. That seems strange um, for you. I know. So now we're in magical the Berkeley Hills at the home of Paul Bertoli. Stunning, beautiful home. We're surrounded. We're you know behind this behind us is this gorgeous hearth. I feel like I'm in Italy. Yeah, and you know this garden full of fresh produce. It's incredible. Paul, you are you're born and raised in California. Yeah. Right across the bay, we're in county in the San bay area, Ra- San Rafael, California, in the bay area. Yeah. Italian family. Yes. Grandparents born in Italy. You said yes. And clearly, I mean, we went down to the basement. Is you've got prosciutto hanging, you've got salumi hanging, you've got balsamic vinegar Barrels being of- produced, an incredible nocino liqueur. We went up in the garden. There's tomatoes. Oh, there's tomatoes being jarred. It's uh, Pickles. Uh, how are we not in Italy? Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, I, I failed to tell you that you're in California now, right? <laughs> and um, I put a little mushroom in the tea. So you actually are in Italy. Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. A little <laughs> no, psilocybin. Just just great. Groovy. <laughs> just kidding. No, no I, I, have, uh, I cultivate this stuff because it's been in my, my family history. And also it continues to be a simple delight and passion for me to be able to have a piece of earth to grow things in and a cellar that we uh, we built in 1996 when we when we remodeled this little Spanish bungalow so it it's um it's always nice to have it's, it's sort of a form of companionship for me uh to have the garden and to have these things in the basement that are curing or uh, I know they're going to be ready you know there's some expectation about it the kids see it the people who come see it I invite them back you know it just goes around like that the anticipation of like the prosciutto. You said it's been hanging since. Yeah, two- May of 21. May of, yeah. It has to taste yes. really good. So for all of those very young listeners out there, Paul is what Andrew and I would consider California culinary royalty. Um, you were the chef for many years at Chez Panisse at its, in its heyday. You, were, you started your own restaurant called Olivetto. Well, I joined that restaurant you joined, with two okay. partners and then became an owner okay. thereafter. And then started a company called Fra Mani in the late 1990s, early 2000s. How many years is it now? Yeah, we've, we formed the company in 2005 and then we built the USDA facility out and we were in production in March of 2006. Here's a little funny tidbit for you, Andrea. I got a call from Paul in probably 2005. And he said, John, I'm coming to New York. I'm going to start a company that makes salumi. And I just, you know, I want to get feedback. I want to know if what, you know, what the street thinks about it. So I said, all right, let's go hit the street. Yeah. And I remember specifically walking around Manhattan with a couple of pieces of salumi. I think you might have even had a little shopping bag. Yes, with the, it. the satchel of salumi. The satchel of yeah. salumi. And we went to people like Frank Crispo. And we went all over New York City mm-hmm. visiting these chefs, and each one, you know, we'd slice off a couple pieces and say, "What do you think?" And everybody was blown away. Yeah, I remember ball. that was a ball, John. Yeah, that was, that was a good time together. It was a lot of fun, and I remember going back to the warehouse and telling Chris Pappas and some of the people that we were with. I was like, "Oh my God, just you wait! This new line of salumis coming from Paul Bertoli, and it is so kick-ass." And uh, 
that kind of started the relationship between Chef's Warehouse and Framani, which today has grown to be this pretty yeah, I mean, significant business. Yes, for so sure. The line is like foundational for us. I mean, it's you know in the top echelon of charcuterie lines that we sell. It has all of the attributes that you would want in fine charcuterie. For me, the cooked line, I'm, I started with chefs in 2010, and I remember you know, a salesperson coming in and doing a tasting, and I had never experienced anything like that before. And it was you know, incredible. Um, for me, my favorite is the mortadella, which is one of the things we're going to be focusing on I'm today. The salami rosa, which is kind of like a cross. Companion product. Yep. They call it, and it translates to marbled bologna. Marbled bologna. Or marbled bologna, actually. And the rosemary ham. So We good. take for granted today having these amazing products in the U.S. Because before Aframani, there were salumi makers in the U.S., but it was very limited and of varying qualities. And I mean, honestly, a lot of it was just very industrial supermarket uh, type product. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you were lucky to go to Italy and you know, one of the memories I would have from, you know, my my young 20s would be a trip to Italy. And all I'd come back saying is, oh, my God, how great was all the salumi and how great was the cheese. And then I would actually smuggle stuff back. And, mm. and you know, those were the days I actually even got caught once in the airport with that. But that's another story. $10,000 fine yeah. for cheese. Did they take it? They did. They took my salumi, my collection. But it's one of the things that we talk about often on Ingredient Insiders is like, People don't really, young people do not realize the bounty of cheeses and salumi and different artisan products that are now available in the United States pretty readily that are, to my, in my opinion, just as good as those things that we had in Italy. Yeah, I think we built a demand for it. I mean, it was I, when I was walking out on the streets of uh, pounding the pavements in New York with John uh, when I first started Fromani, it had really been sort of a solution or a, an outcome of the idea that I got in the restaurant. You know, at Oliveto Restaurant, we did this whole hog program, you know, which was a recapitulation of an experience that I had when I was working in Italy, you know, with pork butchers in January in February. They kill the pigs, the corn is gone, and they put up the hog, the whole hog, nose to tail, you know. So I had that experience of walking the countryside and doing that kind of work. And when I came back to, to Oliveto, I thought, why, why don't we do this? I was getting Paul Nyman's first hog. They'd send it out number one. They're all labeled. It's not, not that it was a number one. But it was just that it was the first hog, and we got that one, and he chose it. And I got it every week, and we made a whole menu out of that thing. And then we made a whole event out of that thing. And then I made a company out of that thing because everyone was saying, I can't get this stuff. This is what I had in 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 Parma or or in Barcelona or in Nice, you know, I, I, this is where can I get it? Can I buy it? You know, and then I called John, right? Because I said, you know, I got to check this idea out. So we did walk the streets with it, and we found that there was a lot of, of quite a lot of interest. I love that idea of the and you know the imagery that the family has, you know, a hog, and they're going to slaughter it, and they're going to use that entire pig over the almost a year. Like starting, you know, with some cuts fresh, and then all preserving it, and and getting twelve months of oh yeah of pork out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes time to preserve a lot of these salamis and prosciuttos. You have to hang them and yeah. And but then there's there, yes, exactly. And then but there's this trophy in Bologna, the mortadella. You know that um, is something I knew I wanted to make, and 
we make it in a, in such a way that is, I think, different from those that you'll find in the market for the most part. Um, mortadella often looks like a very uh, emulsified kind of product, right? Because it is. You know, you take scraps of pork, scraps of fat, water, collagen, protein. You 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 use a chopper at high speeds. And you emulsify that meat. You pull the protein out. You add a lot of water in the way of ice to keep it cool as it's going along. I'm telling a little bit of a, a technical thing about how to make it. Um, but uh, we make it differently. Um, ours is made in what's called a particle reduction process. So if you can imagine a grinder that has plates and blades, you know, with holes. The holes, plates have holes. The blades work behind them. It's a series of plates and blades that gradually get smaller until it's like 0.1 millimeter. So the meat that's going through it, incrementally cut as it's going through, or progressively cut as it's going through, comes out as a cut product, which is very different than one which is scrambled in a, in a big chopper and emulsified. And we also use pr premium cuts to make it, you know. So there's, there's all the, the best shoulder muscles in it. We use the jowl fat, you know. We use the shank because it's rich in that protein that gives you the bite that you want at the end, you know. So that's why it's different, the mortadella. And all this stuff, as you were alluding to at the outset, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to make the salumi. And I, I, I have been always interested as a chef in those processes that require me to intervene, but somehow nature then takes over. You know, like these, these, these prosciutto you're seeing down, and I do it. I sculpt them. I, I take the ischial bone out. I, you know, I trim the fat. I bevel the corners of the salt comes off right but then i hang it up pretty much and let nature do what it's want what it wants you know and it's the same way with all this framani salami they're they're painstakingly made they're they're, they're made i think about time is a crucial thing and in restaurants you hardly have any time to do anything right but one of the things i want to i want to actually jump back because we're going to talk a lot about framani but i want to jump back to well, let's go way back First of all, how did you get into cooking? You grew up in Northern California. Right. Italian family, I think. Italian family. Like cook, most cooking all cooking the time. I have six brothers and sisters, you know. Yeah. And all of the families around us, the Slatteries, the Finnegans, the, the Dominici, the, you know, the Italians and Irish, they were all having kids, lots of kids. And so yeah. there's a lot of cooking all, all the time. And a lot of Italians in the neighborhood we grew up in because my father's, my father's, where my father's father was from and, and where he spent most of his, uh, adolescent years, um, those people emigrated to the same place because they said, hey, come over here. It's great, you know. So there was a lot of good food. So I got my first job through um, the one of the owners of Maison Gourmet, which was within Petrini's Markets. And I started out as a butcher. I was in the butcher's union. Uh -huh. So I was 13 years old. And by the time I was 14, I was a journeyman. And so I started out cutting carcasses and cutting meat and dressing cases and things like that. Organ meats, all of it. When it you were 14? Yeah. And yeah, I used to commute from San Francisco Fel to San Francisco on the bus, the Marin bus that went over. Because it scared the hell out of me. I had to get there early in the morning going through the Tenderloin. And anyway, but I did it. I, um, so that's how I got into it. And then this mentor at the place, Al, Alfredo Lovi, his name was, uh, was an extraordinary cook and he just fed me stuff all the time and 
But I grew up in this neighborhood uh, on this, it was called the Lichtenberg Estate. It was an old estate that was resettled, but and my father bought some parcels on it. And so there was this orchard there of her heirloom fruit. When I was a kid, you know, there were Meyer lemon, Rangpur lime, you know, uh, wallen pears, uh, all, all kinds of grapes and stuff. You know, so I was eating all the time this stuff and, and kind of testing so I, I, I developed a kind of taste memory. You know, it's like when you play the, the, you start the piano early enough, you know, you begin to hear actually what you hear inside, you know. And so to be able to taste inside, I can remember all those tastes, you know. And so I, that somehow guided me because uh, it's what I could do naturally, you know. And so I got into cooking delicatessen. I got into delicatessen selling sausage and cheese wide counter in the center of San Francisco in the Petrini's markets. Fantastic market. No longer there. Um, and then um, I moved to the East Coast because I actually was a music student also. I, I went to, I got my degree in music. And uh, so I went to New York to study piano and composition at the Manus School. And so I, I was spent spent some time there and then ran out of money and luck <laughs> and and moved to Italy. So you didn't cook in Italy? I was a waiter the first time. Okay. Yeah. I, I forgot about Mark Miller and the Fourth Street Grill. That was like nineteen seventy eight. Uh, I opened that with him and was the chef there. And then I came to Alice at Chez Panisse because I wanted to work at Chez Panisse. I had gone to Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And uh, so I grew up with the restaurant, you know, the, the restaurant opened in 72. I was here in 72, right, right, right nearby. Uh -huh. you know? So, uh, yeah, so what happened? Um, I went to Alice and I said, hey, you know, I smell it. This is like the real thing here, you know. I, I smell broth like this house smells today because I'm making broth, you know. Uh, I said, there's real cooking going on here. I'm going to work here. Can I do something? You know, and she said, well, cook me something. So I, I, I invited her over with, you know, the other chefs, Jean-Pierre Moulet, Patricia Curtin. They all came. Mark Miller came. And I totally blew it. Like, What did you cook? She said, you're just not ready to cook here yet. Oh, I did a poached salmon in aspic. It was all wrong, you know, and I did a pea, I did it and I did it in asparagus soup. I cooked it in an aluminum pan and it went dark on me. You know, I just screwed the whole thing up. So she said, you're not ready. So then I went, I went to Italy, that 81 trip, and I came back. And I was hired to d cook a dinner for some wine distributors. And Alice was there, and she tasted the food. She said, come on. Yeah. I need you. I need you now. So I started there in 82, and I spent 10 years at Chez Panisse. And that, that, was, that was an incredible experience. That, it's fascinating that... You first got shot down, yeah, and then you went back again, yeah. or you, or she had a chance to have your food, and that made all the difference in the world. I love. Did that you feel story. like when you were cooking that like it was like a redemption meal, or were you just like you know what? Yeah, did you know she? Yeah, was like there? did you know she was there? I didn't even know she was going to be there. Oh, so that, yeah. That so was it all, luck. all just all it was all you know gr the grace of a life that you know when when I talk to chefs and they say you know what track should I what should I do you know. Um, and and I think that your career finds you, you know, you don't find it. I mean, it's a kind of a backwards way of thinking. And, and I'm not on mushrooms, by the way. <laughs> no. Uh, no, it's uh, it, it certainly found me. You know, I struggled like hell because I thought I would be something else. You know, I, th I thought I would be, a, you know, a professional musician 
first. And do you still play? Uh huh. What was what was? Do you how are your memories of Chez Panisse in the eighties and nineties? Are they fond memories? Was it a you know incredibly fond? Yeah. Incredibly um, inspiring, engaging work. You know, to my job was to create a weekly menu. You know, of usually it was forty dishes. So I did that for ten years, and then to execute on a, on it in fairly short time because the cafe was also opened. You know, so kitchen wasn't entirely free all the time, but we worked around that. So generally, we would start around one o'clock in the afternoon. We'd have a meeting. We talk about the menu. We assign tasks, and then go to work. And by six o'clock, we had the first seating. We were three seatings. Did you feel spoiled by what? Is around you because Andrea and I have been here for you know a little under a week now, and it's so striking how great the abundance of raw material is here. I I imagine you had farmers come into the back door of that restaurant every day. Yeah, I, I have a I have a tome that was written by the foragers. You know where they went, who they talked to. You know that barred rock chicken from Davis. You know. It had a saggy breast meat, you know. I mean, we always everybody laughs about it, but I mean, they, there were so many uh, things that came in the door. Exactly. Now that you say that, I used to have the Chez Panisse Foragers. There was a little book. It was like a printed book. Yeah. And it had all of their purveyors. Right. And I used to being, you know, on an east, the East Coast, you know, always looking for what's new and what's exciting for us. I used to comb through that, and I remember I'd see like Pain Farm Squab. And we'd call them in New York and say, hey, is there any way we can get these squabs? Nine times out of 10, they were too busy. But I did, you know, eventually someone like Al Crochane at uh, Frog Hollow Farm yeah. was like, oh, yeah, we, you know, in a couple of years, we might have enough uh, peaches to send out to you guys. And uh, we started doing that. Um, well, the writing about these things is, is really um, uh, a good thing to do to memorialize. And I, I've been doing a, a fair amount of writing around. It reminds me that I've been doing a fair amount of writing around on Substack, um, uh, my son and I, Anthony, Anthony's a fabulously intelligent kid and, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud father, right? Um, but he's a, a very good photographer. He really has an eye for food and, um, and he has a big appetite for the subject that we're doing. So we saw some of those photos on the Substack, which is yeah. amazing. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. No? How does someone get on, how do you, what do they search to get on the Substack? So it's just notice.substack.com. That's what it is. It's a really interesting concept. Um, You know, I'll let you, you know, share it with everybody. But I, you know, I think, um, you know, as a, as someone who cooks a lot at home, you know, I don't typically use recipes. So I think to kind of create, you know, you call them blueprints, but to create those blueprints for people who, um, you know, maybe want to not be so tied down, I think is, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to address people who use recipes as crutches and yeah. who panic in the kitchen. You know, as to you can, you can really relax with this. Again, time comes into it. You it, you have to have the time to do this, and you have to say it's important to do it. And I feel extremely fortunate to to live here, as as you said, John, with the abundance that we have, and in my own little piece of earth here, where I can grow some vegetables. You know, that we have every night. It's it's a real delight. But um, yeah, the writing is, is has been interesting. It's been an interesting project, and um, it's it's where I feel like I, I ought to be right now because I'm I'm 68 years old and I've I've been doing these things for a long time, and I feel like I want to share it in a 
in another way, you know? I mean, I still like, I'm totally uh, behind Framani and, and supervising and consulting with the people that I've trained to work there, you know? Um, so it's, it's still a, a big job. But um, I want to get back on that timeline. All right. So you leave Chez Panisse. Right. 91, 92? 92, yeah. 92. And from there, where do you end up going? Um, well, I had a bit of a break then because I, um, I got a divorce and um, I decided I was, I was not happy <laughs> and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was sort of lost. And um, so my friend said, why don't you come up here and read, read the fourth century? Because Rome fell 376, right? And all these people were like stuck. They didn't know what to do. Who's God? You know, what's happening? Where do I live? And a lot of them kind of went off on their own. They were alone. They were in the desert, either sitting in, sitting in caves or on sticks or something. So I got fascinated by this story. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I went and read philosophy and, and history for a year and took, took time off. And then I came back and I, was, and I was hungry, very hungry for being out of Toronto, for one thing. I was at UC, UC Toronto. UC Toronto, U of Toronto, I should say. Um, so I came back and um, I got back into the food community and I, I consulted a little bit for several restaurants. I paired up with uh, David Vardy down at then Ochame. It's no longer there. And um, and then the clients called me at Oliveto and they, they asked me if I would come over and um, look at their restaurant, give them some evaluation. And I'm going to chime in. So Oliveto was... In Oakland, not in, in Berkeley or Oakland? Oakland? It's in Oakland. In Oakland and was an, just another iconic Northern California incredible restaurant. Um, how was it different than Chez Panisse when you went there? Well, full a la carte menu um, what was in place, and that was kind of the format that we decided to take. Although, you know, I, I made some suggestions early on about uh, how we could change the food, how we could change the environment, and how we could, you know, um, address the service issues. And so we did that over time and remodeled the place and put put a hearth, like this hearth right here, right in front of the BART station, facing the BART station. So people coming off, what do you want to do? You want to go there, right? Um, a very obvious form of marketing. But Anyway, so you know, that was a full, uh, in answer to your question, it was a full a la carte menu, um, Italian all the way. And um, we did some really great things there. Bob and Maggie, incredibly engaging and engaged uh, partners at uh, Oliveto and, and wonderful to their patrons and kept it on after I left, which was in 2005. So you went right from there. To Framani. Framani, yeah. Yeah, to Framani after that, right. And we talked about those early days hitting the street in New York. What was like, we have a lot of young chefs, we have a lot of restaurateurs, and we also have entrepreneurs in the food world mm -hmm. that are aspiring to open their own businesses. What, you know, what was it like to get a business going in the food world? I can only imagine the challenges, especially when you're working with, you know, raw meats and things like that. What was that like and how, you know, the company's now quite big. How did you scale it? How'd you do it? What was the mindset there? 
Yeah, so the mindset was to try and create something that was based on this experience of the use of the whole animal and also to support those farmers like Nyman Ranch at the time whose vision was of the, whose vision of the future was the past or you know uh, that's not how they said it. They said it more eloquently, but um, it's a, it's a it's a vision of the future that looks like the past. That's that's the way they said it. So I was really on to that because I was I wanted to support the rebirth of a form of agriculture where you're actually talking about ecology, where pigs and soy and corn work in tandem, soil is regenerated, farmers work there, not poor immigrants, um, no confinement, no antibiotics, right? Doing it the right way. Animal welfare, all of it. That that That's what we support. We continue to support that and everyone should. Um, how many products did you start out with there? So we had, I believe we had six salami and some pancetta and we had fresh sausage. Um, but that didn't float the boat, right? So we, you know, I entirely miscalculated how long it would take to sell the product, you know? Um, so you pay your meat bill in seven days. You pay that, you pay that butcher. And you may be hanging something up in the air. Those salami you saw downstairs. 75 days, 80 days or so, and you're not getting paid until you sell it. So then it goes to a distributor, then it goes to a market, then it goes to a consumer. So we had to scramble quickly to create a fuller line of products that would fill out the delicatessen. So we started making hams. Now we have three hams. We have a smoked ham, a rosemary ham, and apple ham. That's where the cook yeah. line came in. Yes, the cook line came in, right. The mortadella, the salami rosa, a gallantine of chicken, capicolo, uh, and sausages, you know. Let's dive into mortadella. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, let's do that. Because mor mortadella kind of has, I think, maybe in the past, I'm not going to say a bad reputation, but it had this reputation of like, you know, kind of whatever was left on the floor, mm -hmm. you know, they swept it up from, you know, the day at the butcher shop. They would throw it in the grinder, you know, emulsifier, whatever, and that was mortadella. Yes, my uh, Italian friend of mine says we clean the plant with the mortadella. Right. <laughs> well, that's that could be one of the problems with it. I think the problem is bologna, you know, American bologna, which was a bad imitation of mortadella di bologna, mm -hmm. which is a very different kind of product altogether. It is one of the triumphs of. Italian cuisine, as far as I'm concerned, and in terms of triumph of charcuterie, it's not, it's 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 what industry did, you know, it's what Ferrari did to the Fiat. I mean, you know, it's it, he made it big. I never made that connection before, but bologna, as we know it in the U.S., yeah. is coming from Bologna. Wow, Bologna. Yeah. But right. I feel like now I'm seeing it. You know, John and I had lunch at uh, Chisiamo. Yeah, and they have a mortadella plate. Um, I've uh, eaten at Razza in Jersey City at Dan Richard's place. He has a mortadella plate. And I think I'm used to only seeing prosciutto typically served or like a charcuterie board, but I'm feeling like mortadella is having a moment right now. Yeah, yeah, all these guys in New York are starting to do yeah. these fluffy piles of beautiful pink glistening mm -hmm. with like a gnocco frito. that you can just yeah. Yeah. You got to tell me where that go for that. Yeah. No, I've noticed I noticed that too and I was I walked into a I walked into a, a wine merchant yesterday to buy a, buy a bottle of wine. And she said, "Oh, I love your mortadella." She said, "I fried some up last night." She said, oh, I said, you did. Well, how'd you do that? And she said, well, I was looking in this magazine and I noticed that there was a katsu 
mortadella. Like, you know how they did that with Spam, yeah. Katsu and all? Yep. So they'd taken the mortadella and dipped it in, I'm sure, first in flour, then in egg, then in some panko crumb or something like that, and they fried it up. And she said, oh, it was so delicious, you know? So it was not, was not only that she told me that she did it, like somebody random, but that she had read an article about <laughs> That's it. That's fascinating. So you might be right. I don't know. No, I, I mean, I really think it is. I will sear it um, in the morning. I like to have a meat with my, and like I eat it with scrambled eggs. Why not? And I just, yeah. I, I love, I love, love, love well, it. That, that's a nice thing about mortadella too. It is very versatile. Um, tell us about some of the ways you've used mortadella in the past. I know in, in parts of Bologna and Emilia-Romagna, they'll use it in a filling for tortellini. and. Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely there. Um, I don't know. I kind of treat it like a carpaccio sometimes too because it's a mild meat. So, you know, it does take to a little chopped pickle of some sort, a little olive salad, something like that. I mean... My mother just wrapped it around these handmade grissini that she used to make, you know, and, and we eat it with white cocktail onions. It was delicious, you know. To pistachio. I was going to say, what's the pistachio? history of the pistachio in there? So the, there is no pistachio in, in ours. It's the classic version. The classic version, if you go to the tutelare, the, the rule, you know, uh, it tells it tells you like what's in the classic one. All these products that have denominazione di origine controllata, whatever, or protected yeah. origin, uh, will will have a rule base. You know, so the classic one doesn't have it. What? But, where? But when did that happen? When they when they codified it. Do you want another date? I don't know the date actually. We could make one up right now. Yeah, we, if you want. <laughs> yeah, I think it was nineteen seventy. No, but the yeah, rosa. I think that no, sounds the, right. The, the rosa that we make, which is salami rosa, it's like a salami cotto. If people on the east coast would know of cara salami, right? But cotto is the word that means cooked. So it's made as a companion product to the mortadella because it uses a bit of the impasto, which is the the we call it the batter or the paste, you know, to bind up little scraps. In the salami manufacturers, there was always little trim parts, you know. But they had big ovens where the mortadella would go in, like uh, from Matonelle, the, the tile ovens, you know, like ceramic ovens. They cook the mortadella in there. Then they put the salami rosa in right next to it. So they say, oh, we got a little scrap. We'll take, we'll clean out that machine and we'll mix it up with this stuff. And we'll put some warm spice on top of it and some pistachio nuts, which were in the Mediterranean, you know, in the first century AD. They were here from China, you know, the Romans brought them. Um, so they, you know, it's not as though it's not in there because they weren't there. They were yeah. there. Yeah. You know, Andrea's handle on Instagram is the prosciutto queen. But as we're having this discussion, I'm thinking, first of all, if you're a restaurateur and you've been putting out, you know, plates of prosciutto for a long time, full respect for that. Who doesn't love the prosciutto? Andrea, no disrespect to you, but I think that there should be a lot more mortadella. We mentioned a few restaurants yeah. that are doing it, but this, it's so, people, everyone loves it when they have it. I noticed oh. the way that everybody reacts to it. The other thing I wanted to mention was, I've been to a few food fairs in Italy and seen these giant mortadellas. You ever seen one of these? Yeah. Like they're like a quarter kilos. mile long. No, I mean, they're kilos. gigantic. How do they make yeah. those? Yeah. How do you cook? Yeah. So, they have ovens that big or they yeah. piece them together? I'll show you a picture afterwards. There, I worked with a guy who just made more. His, his thing was mortadella. And I brought him, actually brought him over in the beginning to help us craft ours, you know, because I, I wanted expert advice from a real veteran. He, yeah, they're ovens, John, that are, you know, they're this, usually about the size of this room. 
and they can make, you know, they can make a torpedo if they want out of it because they have casings and then they tie them up, you know, so they're bound, so they yeah. hold up. Yeah. I feel like one year at the Chibus Food Festival, there were dueling giant <laughs> mortadellas in the room and everybody was trying to kind of out to each other. <laughs> it was very interesting. My mortadella is bigger yes. than your they mortadella? More, yeah, it was mortadella mm. envy for sure going on in the room. Yeah. What's the size of the Framani mortadellas for a restaurant who wants to come and buy a piece? So we make 12 pounders like this, but we cut them in half, you know, because most there's a sweet spot for delicatessen operators, you know, before they, you want to slice it up and have it be good before it, code, it codes out. So six pounds. Great That's size a for a restaurant. Size. Not an over, you know, oh, not no, a huge commitment. And you don't have the nut allergy. No Just nuts. Thought of that. No, no nut no allergy. Pistachio. That's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ours is really sweet. I, I just, I cut some up yesterday. It's special. Yeah. It's that jowl fat in there. You know, that, that really, it's, it's just the most buttery, delicious fat. What I got to take you down and show you. I didn't show you the Largo. Because mm. I've got that in a, a marble sarcophagus down there. Now, how is a product like Framani different than the, an industrial product, you know, uh, the supermarket, you know, your generic supermarket salamis? How, you know, is it, are there things that aren't in there? The thing, you know, how, but what are, what are the big differences? Well, first of all, is the meat quality. Okay. So we, we talked a little bit about that already. Um, but, you know, we source from, if, if, we're, if you were to think of the meat supply as a pyramid, the top 3% of suppliers of antibiotic-free, uh, either pasture-red or animal welfare-approved sources of meat is very small. So it starts with the quality of the meat, and that's essential for making both delicious products uh, that are fermented and dried or cooked. And uh, so, it's, so it's the meat quality, first of all. And, th and then it's the working of it. You know, we're small batch producers, so we keep sharp blades and cold temperatures and plates are really sharp as well. We mix, I don't have, it's nothing automatic about it. You know, our people are saying that you got to mix three minutes this way, reverse it, mix three minutes that way, do that four times, document it that you've done it, you know? Um, so the grinding coarse ground, that's the other thing. Our stuff is coarse ground. If out in the marketplace, most of it, because it gives up water faster, the fermented dry cured products, if it's finely ground, you find most of it is that way. Not all of it. We have some competitors, of course, who who are doing a very good job as well. Um, and then the stuffing and the hand tying. We hand tie everyone, so everyone gets treatment. Why do we do that? Well, we could get a tying machine, but it wouldn't wouldn't work with the other equipment. And we're trying to get a certain tension in the sausage when we when we stuff it, and so it needs to be trussed. Each one needs to be trussed. It's all natural casing. I want to jump back again to mortadella. And cooking are, is more. To, are there recipes that we don't know about where mortadella is used? And I, what I mean by that is, you know, are there pasta dishes where guanciale is substituted for mortadella or, or things like that? I'm sure there are. Yeah, I'm sure that I could make up some for you here. Yeah, I don't know that there are any classic ones. Yeah, um, but I can say that you know. Andrea's idea before was a very good one, you know, and I don't know if this is it, but if you take some stranded pasta, you know, and you, you don't use olive oil, use butter and you might use parsley, not oregano, not rosemary, not a strong herb because mortadella is a fine product and you slice it very thin and you cut it. It's like the, you cut as much, maybe 
two thirds as much mortadella as you have pasta in stranded pieces and you mix it hot and you eat it with Parmesan cheese. Yum. Take I would us, do that. Yeah, I'm salivating. That sounds pretty damn good to me. How, tell us exactly how you would use mortadella as a filling for pasta. Mm-hmm. Take us through that quick cooking lesson. Yeah. So the, the ragu you would make for ravioli or tortellini or something like that. It's different in Parma than it is in like Bergamo. In Bergamo, they use beef, you know, and they'll use some beef tongue. They use some uh, short rib in it. Those are fat meats, you know. Uh, and the kind of the top notes that you get from seasoned charcuterie, whether it's putting a little bit of salami in, whether it's putting a little fresh sausage in, or whether it's putting some mortadella ground in, is like a, it's like a top note that you get. You get all that savor underneath, you know, with the beef and the fat and uh, the tongue meat and maybe a little liver sometimes as well, you know, in there. And parma, always, always cheese, you know. But then they, they, because of the amount of fat, they kind of wad it up. They don't add any fillers, you know, there's no breadcrumb in it, although there can be, but usually some cheese and um, you're done. Yum. If you robocoot it mm-hmm. and then fold it in ricotta, could you use it as like a ravioli filling sure. that way? Absolutely. I want to do oh, that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Get the bellwether ricotta. Yeah, it's really the, the sheep's milk, especially. Now that I just eat like a spoon, you know, just delicious. Well, this has been phenomenal. First of all, thank you for having us in your home. You're welcome. If I didn't say this already, just let me paint a little bit of a picture here. Yeah. We have a beautiful fire going in the hearth. There's this kitchen, which looks like a Nona's kitchen in the Italian hillside with the pans hanging, the meat slicer on the counter, of course. But when we first opened the door, we walked in, I was the the amazing aroma of that broth that you're making. It just, it took over for me. Something good is happening in, in here. So this has really been quite a treat to be in your home talking about something that's so passionate and, you know, and your life. I have um, one more question. Oh, please go ahead. This Andrew. is my favorite question. Oh, yeah. What's, I can't imagine what you're going to ask. <laughs> oh, now that you're here, you might even be able to see it, but go yeah. ahead. I know what she's going to ask you. I would love to know the five pantry items that you always have to have, no matter what. Pantry staples. A colander. Okay. A very, very sharp 10-inch knife. Love it. Plus paring knife. Okay. A scissors, because I'm always opening things. Mm -hmm. Twine. Twine. That's five. Five. All right, now I'm going to ask a question. Okay. What are five ingredients in your pantry that you must have at all times? Parmigiano-Reggiano. Anchovies, new oil, newest oil, plus uh, oil, oils. You know, use different oils. All olive oil or are you using different oils? Grapeseed oil I use. And I use uh, black olive oil. Oil pressed from black olives, which is a perfume, uh, perfume really. How many is three, John? You have four. One more? We have to limit you to one more. Uh, oh, p- pantry staples, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
12 wheat, wheat grain. I mean, I make bread and pasta grain. Love it. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much for giving us a tour of your lovely home and just telling us all about Fermani and your amazing life. Well, thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you both. Thanks so much. I can't wait to see this big marble box with the lardo in it now. Yes. Let's go see the lardo. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. You can watch this episode on YouTube and see more behind-the-scenes content by following us. Find us on Instagram by searching at Ingredient Insiders.